Let's open the written word of God to John chapter 4. And let's learn more about the Lord Jesus Christ meeting the woman of Sychar or the woman of Samaria, the Samaritan woman, however you would like to refer to her, though she was from the city of Sychar. John chapter 4, let me read to you verses 1 through 19. When therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself baptized not, but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again into Galilee. And he must needs go through Samaria. Then cometh he to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well, and it was about the sixth hour. There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink. For his disciples were gone away unto the city to buy meat. Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldest have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. The woman saith unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence then hast thou that living water? Art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well, and drank thereof himself, and his children, and his cattle? Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman saith unto him, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. Jesus saith unto her, Go, call thy husband, and come hither. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said unto her, Thou hast well said, I have no husband. For thou hast had five husbands, and he whom thou now hast is not thy husband. In that saidest thou truly. The woman saith unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet, and a man, and more than a prophet, the Son of God, and God in the flesh. For any listening to this sermon later, or viewing this video, I would highly recommend that you read 2 Kings chapter 17 in order to learn about the origin of the Samaritans. And I would also recommend that you read Isaiah chapter 44, verses 9 through 20, for the lesson there about men being totally deceived and blinded and having a lie in their right hand and being unable to deliver themselves right. as preparatory material for this particular passage of Scripture. Jesus gave personal attention to one man in John chapter 3, the man Nicodemus. 
He gave personal attention to one woman in John chapter 4. Every man ought to take comfort by chapter 3. Every woman ought to take comfort by chapter 4. But the Lord deals with us on an individual, personal, intimate basis, and we ought to embrace that, believe it, and respond accordingly. He deals with us individually. Each detail of Jesus being in Samaria and meeting this woman should move you because Jesus was sent to seek and to save the lost, even the worst among them, like this woman, like you, like me. The worship of God is not a matter of personal preference. God doesn't care about what you prefer. God cares for what he prefers. That's why he's God. And that's why you're not. And so we're going to learn that. Jesus didn't care about sincerity, culture, tradition, or personal feelings of false worshipers. Let's embrace Bible evangelism and see the one-on-one character of how the Lord Jesus Christ dealt with this woman, and it eventually led to the conversion of many in the city of Sychar. Now, when we read these verses, the first few verses we've already been over last Lord's Day, the Lord found out and knew that the Pharisees had heard that he had more disciples following him and more people were being baptized by him than John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist had alarmed them by the inroads he was making in the population of the country. And with Jesus baptizing more, it brought concern that the Pharisees would be looking for him. And so it wasn't his time to die yet. He was more than willing to die at the right time. He had work to do for three years. And so he departed from Judea to go north. If you, There's maps in the back of your Bibles. And there's maps online. And if you go north from Jerusalem, you have to go directly north. It's at the eastern end of the Mediterranean Sea. You eventually come to the Sea of Galilee, where Galilee was with towns called Nazareth, Capernaum, and other places. Cana of Galilee, where he performed his first miracle of turning the water into wine. And so it tells us, that he departed in verse 3 to go into Galilee, and it tells us why. Because the Pharisees had heard of his rising influence, and he wanted to be away from them for a spell to let things cool off in Judea. Verse 4, and he must needs go through Samaria, because lying between Judea, which has Jerusalem in it, and Galilee, is the area called Samaria, where the Samaritans lived. And he must needs go through Samaria. No, he didn't must needs go through Samaria because he could have gone around Samaria to get from Judea to Galilee. So I'm putting a construction on these words here. It's telling you that there was a reason and a purpose for him to go directly through Samaria because he needed to meet the woman of Sychar. And so he must needs go through Samaria, not just because it was the shortest route, but because it had a person there he intended to meet. He cometh to this city called Sychar, It was near to a parcel of ground that Jacob had given Joseph. Jacob's well was there. It's not recorded anywhere else in the Bible about Jacob's well being there. Jesus was wearied from his journey, traveling by foot. This place is 30 miles north of Jerusalem. And so he sits on the well, and it's about the sixth hour. His apostles go into the city of Sychar to get them some refreshment, some food. And so a woman of Samaria comes to draw water. And Jesus says to her, give me to drink. And we take up today with some further verses. Give me to drink. Now that's a pretty innocent opening. You can start that way and just keep progressing a little bit at a time. 
And the Lord Jesus Christ shows us brilliant divine wisdom in leading this woman of Samaria along until she says he's a prophet. In the last verse I just read you, verse 19, and she pretty soon is going to mention the Christ. He's going to identify himself as the Christ, and she's going to go into her city and tell her city, I think we found the Christ. She's going to do the same as Andrew did for Peter and Philip did for Nathaniel. She's going to do it for a city. And so we have the first opening, give me to drink. Verse 9, Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. The issue here is not that Jesus, being alone and a man, is talking to a woman that's alone at a well. No one else is around. The issue is they come from two very different nations and cultures and religions. And so the woman points that out as if the Lord didn't know. But she's reminding him, listen, you're asking a drink of me, and if I give you a drink, then we've crossed the boundary of what Jews and Gentiles do with each other. You know that Jews aren't supposed to accept kindness and have friendship with Samaritans, and we've got some of our own rules. Uh, you're asking me for a drink. That's what, that's so, and she does. Jesus got a response, and he knew he would for more than one reason. He was God in the flesh, and so he knew exactly what response he was going to get, and he knew that he, being a Jew, asking a Samaritan was going to get a response. So he knew by both natures. Here is one of few encounters and exchanges reported of Jesus with a Gentile. And let us be thankful for this moment. This is a watershed event. This is a transcendent event that the Lord Jesus Christ would take time with a single Gentile woman and that a Samaritan woman that the Jews had no dealings with. Let's thank the Lord for that. Last Lord's Day, let me chase for a moment here. Last Lord's Day, I turned you to Isaiah chapter 11 and showed you in verse 10 the ensign of the people that would stand up to gather the Gentiles together. I showed you the verses before it, the verses after it. Some of you, thank you, said that you truly appreciated Isaiah 11 being presented to you again. But I'd like you to look at Romans chapter 15 with me right now. Romans chapter 15 for just a moment for us to celebrate Jesus meeting a Gentile. A single Gentile, a Gentile woman, and yea, a Samaritan woman. The verse I read to you last Lord's Day from Isaiah 11 and verse 10 was this. And in that day, I told you what that day was. It was the gospel era of the New Testament. And in that day, there shall be a root of Jesse, which shall stand for an ensign of the people. And to it shall the Gentiles seek, and his rest shall be glorious. That is a prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ in the days of the New Testament. Now for the fulfillment of that, let me read to you Romans 15 and verse 12. And again, Isaiah saith, There shall be a root of Jesse, and he that shall rise to reign over the Gentiles, in him shall the Gentiles trust. There is Paul quoting Isaiah 11 and verse 10 and applying it to the Gentile conversions already occurring in the days of the New Testament before 70 A.D. But I want to start at verse 8 of this passage. 
Now I say, we need these words. <coughs> they will help us. Paul writing to the church at Rome, which was made up of Jews and Gentiles. Now I say that Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God, to confirm the promises made unto the fathers, and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, For this cause I will confess to thee among the Gentiles, and sing unto thy name. And again he saith, Rejoice, ye Gentiles, with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all ye Gentiles, and laud him, all ye people. And again, Isaiah saith, There shall be a root of Jesse, and he that shall rise to reign over the Gentiles, in him shall the Gentiles trust. No, notice that in verse 8, Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision. Jesus Christ was sent to the Jews who circumcised themselves among the earth's nations. And so they're identified by this minor surgery in this verse because it was a sign of the covenant they had from Abraham. Jesus was a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God. But in addition, he opened up and began the ministry to the Gentiles and then follows verses 9, 10, 11, and 12, four different quotes from the Old Testament proving that this was the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies about us Gentiles being converted to the truth. Amen. And so we want to give thanks to God. Before we go any further, let's come back now to John chapter 4 and verse 9. And we thank thee, Lord that thou hast called <coughs> us Gentiles. And we bless and praise your holy name. He did not reveal his truth to the Gentiles before. We read that and Jonah explained that and reminded us of it in Psalm 103 and verse 7. And in Psalm 147 verses 19 and 20, God's truth was not made known to any other nation but that little tiniest of nations called Israel under the Old Testament. Truth is a privilege and a blessing. It is not a right. right. We chose a lie in the Garden of Eden. They choose lies. Men choose lies every day. And so God doesn't owe any man the truth, and he loves to confuse and confound men who don't want the truth. And so he rewires them. He loves to take wire nuts off in heads and pull wires apart and stick them back together and rewire, rewire them together. And we see that happening all around us, all this transgender junk and all the stuff that happens like that, which 50 years ago, I'm 60, when I was a 10-year-old boy, nobody would have dared talk about any of this crap because it had been stoned in the streets or drowned in a locker room. Right. 50 years. But a lot of things have happened. Because God does rewire men. Because we don't want the truth by nature. We want our own lies and hallucinations that get rid of a God that can control our lives. That has told us how we ought to live when we want to live our own way. And so we have a woman of Samaria here and the Lord is going to deal with her. How is it that thou being a Jew askest drink of me which am a woman of Samaria? Because the two don't have any dealings with each other, sir. Now let's just take a moment to find out why. If you have read 2 Kings chapter 17, the Samaritans were Assyrians at best, or at worst, however you want to look at it, that had been brought in to repopulate this particular area between Galilee and Judea 
because the kings of Assyria had taken those Jews away. Those descendants of Ephraim and Manasseh that populated that part of Israel, the kings of Assyria, and were told in detail their names, when they did it, how they did it, and where they took these Israelites. But in order to destroy a nation, you take the people away and put them somewhere else, and the nation ceases to be. And so those Ephraimites had been taken away by the king of Assyria and planted throughout Assyria and Babylon and Mesopotamia. In their place, he brought in Assyrians and put them there. This is approximately 600 B.C. Those are the Samaritans. They, they, inbred with some of, they, they bred with some of the Jews that were in the area because all the Jews weren't removed. And so they're half-breeds as well, and they're Assyrians. And there's some Assyrian and Jewish half-breeds that pretended to have a religion that came from Jehovah. They only accepted the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and rejected the rest. And they did this for many hundreds of years, even to 777 that still exist today. It's interesting, and let's just pass over this quickly. It's interesting that in 2 Kings chapter 17, when these Assyrians came in and possessed property in God's nation, God sent lions out to slay them. And many of them were killed by lions. They sent a messenger back to the king of Assyria saying, we don't know how to worship the God of this place. Would you please send us a priest? And so a priest from Israel, Israel didn't have any. So a false priest was sent back that taught them the rudiments of worshiping Jehovah. And so they had some rudiments of worshiping Jehovah, the monotheistic God of the Jews, the one that we worship, the one that revealed himself to Moses by his name, I am that I am, which when pointed up with European vowels is pronounced as Jehovah. That's where Jehovah comes from. That's the name of our God. Allah is not the name of anything but a moon of the Arabians. Why do you think they have a crescent moon on the top of all their mosques? They're moon worshipers. We worship the true and living God, the creator of heaven and earth. And his name is Jehovah. Well, they learned a little bit about Jehovah because 2 Kings chapter 17 says that they feared Jehovah and they served their idols. So these Assyrians brought their idols in. They learned some rudiments of external ceremonial religion about worshiping Jehovah and they did the two together. And the lions disappeared. Because the God of the Bible, the Lord Jehovah, will honor even lip service given to his name and to his worship. What do you think America is still being preserved for today? There's about two reasons. One, that there's a core group of a very small remnant of true worshipers of him left in the nation. And still, they give some lip service to him in this nation. Yesterday, I listened again to the 250 Marines at Camp Pendleton singing the Days of Elijah. Now this particular song, The Days of Elijah, runs for about four and a half minutes. And in the middle of it are 18 repetitions of the words, There is no God like Jehovah. And to watch 250 of our testosterone-filled, 
highly trained Marines with their packs on, jumping up and down, pumping the air, and shouting. It's exciting. Amen. You know, and they were going to be shipped to the Middle East to deal with uh, Muslims that say there is no God but Allah. I like that. Praise the Lord. How many other nations do you think on earth have a military that are allowed, encouraged, to sing such songs about Jehovah? Do you think Putin is leading any of his Marines in the singing of there is no God like Jehovah? Not a chance. Do you think they're singing it north of the border in Canada? No way. South of the border in Mexico? No way. We still live in a unique nation. And that was just a couple of years ago. Thank you, Lord, for that. We say in our pledge, one nation under God. The coins and money you have in your wallet or your pocket say, in God we trust. And that God was never intended, not even 1%, to be Allah. Amen. That is Jehovah, God, of the ridiculous idea that they have called the Judeo-Christian heritage. We don't believe in that stuff by the way that they describe it, but we do believe in Jehovah of the Bible. Amen. And that was the God of this nation. That's, what, that's the only God they ever met when they said, in God we trust. Amen. We need to pass on. History tells us that the Samaritans, at the time that the Jews came back from Babylon, remember for 70 years there were no Jews in Jerusalem. They had been taken captive to Babylon. And they came back, and they rebuilt the city, and they rebuilt the temple. Well, at that time, these Samaritans came and asked Nehemiah if they might assist in the building. And Nehemiah said, you don't have anything to do with this. Right. They said, we've been worshiping Jehovah while you've been gone. You don't have any part with us. I love Nehemiah. Amen. Uh, you need to read this in Ezra and Nehemiah. Both books include some about these Samaritans. So they went to Mount Gerizim, which is 30 miles north, as I've already mentioned. Mount Gerizim is right here, right here by this city of Sychar and Jacob's Well in Shechem. We can read about Mount Gerizim in other places. Let me just briefly tell you, Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal were a, a half a mile apart or so. And they put six tribes on one mountain for blessing, and they put six tribes on Mount Ebal for cursing. And they would then have priests in the center that would read the curses of God, and all the people from the two mountains would say, Amen. Right. Amen. And you can find that in Deuteronomy chapter 27. Well, the Samaritans knew the importance of Mount Gerizim as the mountain of blessing, and so when the Jews took over Mount Zion and were rebuilding the city of Jerusalem, they went to Mount Gerizim and built a like temple on that mountain, 30 miles north of Jerusalem, because the Jews wouldn't have anything to do with Assyrian half-breed imposters thinking that they had anything to do with worshiping Jehovah. They claim that the Jews' religion was corrupted after their long stay in Babylon. Is that true? Yes. The rabbinical training of the Jews, much of it came out of Babylon. You know, Jesus had to correct the training of the, the rabbis and so forth, right. that had corrupted his word. And that's what Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7 are about, the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says, Ye have heard that it hath been said. And he's not quoting Moses. He's quoting them, and he has to correct it repeatedly. 
The Samaritans sought to mimic the true worship of God that was going on on Mount Moriah and Mount Zion in Jerusalem. They did this to help Sanbal and others rejected by the noble Nehemiah. John Hyrcanus, son of Simon Maccabees, in 129 B.C., destroyed the area and destroyed the temple on that mountain. The Jews and Samaritans did not love each other. Are, are you getting that now? You know, they tried to join them. The Jews wouldn't let them, so they went and built a temple to ape the worship of God in Jerusalem. John Hyrcanus of the Maccabees, in restoring the worship of God in Jerusalem, which is where you get Hanukkah. What is Hanukkah for? It's a celebration of the Maccabees destroying the Greeks who had taken over the temple of Jehovah in Jerusalem and had sacrificed swine there, not exactly pleasing to a kosher Jew, if you follow me. And they had set up a, set up a brothel in the temple. Well, the sons of Judas Maccabees purged that temple. And from that, we get the, the festival called the Festival of Lights called Hanukkah. And Jesus honored it in John chapter 10. But John Hyrcanus, the son of Simon Maccabees, destroyed the temple of the Samaritans. But the Samaritans continued to worship toward the holy spot where the temple had stood because they were still aping the religion of Jehovah. Because do you remember what Solomon had prayed at the dedication of his temple? He prayed in 1 Kings chapter 8 a long prayer and said, If we disobey you, and this place gets destroyed, and you haul us away from here like we will deserve, if we in that faraway place bend our knee and direct our faces toward Jerusalem, will you hear from this place and deliver us? And so the Bible tells us that Daniel, when he was in Babylon as a prisoner, would get three times a day, would fling open his window and pray toward Jerusalem. Can you think of another religion that apes the Bible? They use little carpets because they want to go for a magic carpet ride to where they can find 72 palm trees and virgins. Can, are, am I helping you get there? The Muslims, they get on their little carpets and pray toward Mecca where they have their meteorite. The Kaaba stone is a meteorite in Mecca, just like God told Israel in 1000 BC. But it wasn't until 700 AD when the illiterate camel trader, Muhammad, came up with the idea of Mecca being used in such a way for their meteorite. The devil apes the truth. Why did these religions all have sacrifices of animals and sacrifices of wine. Where did the idea of sacrifice come from? Who originated the idea of sacrifice? The Lord Jehovah in the Garden of Eden. I'm telling you a little bit about these Samaritans so that you can understand what verse 9 is all about. Why did the Jews and the Samaritans dislike each other? Because at best, the Samaritans were half-breeds. At worst, they were Assyrians. So their origin was different than the Jews. Second of all, their religion was different from the Jews, and that was enough. If your origin wasn't Jewish and your religion wasn't Jewish, they hated each other. One of the worst things that a Jew could say to Jesus, and they did say it in John chapter 8, Thou art a Samaritan. It's one of the worst things you could say to a Jew. 
And so to blaspheme the Lord Jesus Christ, they did that. Things could be shown in the Bible. When the Lord Jesus Christ wanted to truly teach, what does it mean to love your neighbor? That doesn't mean to love your friends. What does it mean to love your neighbor? He used the example of the good Samaritan. There, weren't such a, there wasn't such a thing. The Jews didn't believe there was such a thing as a good Samaritan. And so Jesus puts a wounded Jew in a ditch. A Levite passes by from the tribe from which come the priests. And he just went by on the other side of the road. I want to get involved in that. And so the Levite ignored the wounded Jew. And then a priest came by of the Jews' religion and ignored the wounded Jew. But then a Samaritan came by on his, in his way of ordinary business. And he stopped, poured oil and wine in the man's wounds, <coughs> bound him up, put him on one of his beasts, carried him to an inn, gave him to the innkeeper and said, take care of him. I'll cover any other expenses that you encounter and gave him two pence to keep the man. And then Jesus said to the lawyer that had questioned him on the meaning of the words, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Which man was neighbor to the wounded Jew? And the lawyer had to say the Samaritan. That's and so when the Bible says thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, it doesn't mean the people living next door, and it doesn't mean your friends. It means someone culturally that your culture or your race or your nation may not like. Right. They may hate them. And so the Lord just gives us a beautiful illustration of what it really means to love your neighbor. Amen. And so thus, let's end uh, John 4 and verse 9. Verse 10, Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldest have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. If thou knewest the gift of God, what is the gift of God? It's the gift of his son. He just taught it a, couple of, a few days earlier to Nicodemus. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. For what purpose? To guarantee the everlasting or eternal life of believers from Jews or Gentiles. If thou knewest the gift of God, if you knew that God had given his son to deliver Jews and Gentiles and guarantee their eternal life, if you had known that, and if you had known who it is that is speaking to thee right now, you would have asked of him something better than the H2O that you have in Jacob's well. He would have given thee living water. Amen. And we understand that living water to, to still be a metaphor. Jesus is not leaping all the way to the limitation of it being the Holy Spirit, though that is the emphasis by the words he's going to use to describe it. But he's using the metaphor of water, which he asked her for, to describe all that's involved in salvation, including the Holy Spirit. You would have asked of Him the grace of the gospel. You would have asked of Him the truth about the Son of God. You would have asked of Him about believing on the Son of God. You would have asked of Him about the blessing of the Spirit that is coming. Because this is still three years too early for the blessing of the Spirit. If she would have asked him point blank, please give me the Holy Ghost, he would have said, three years, ma'am. 
I taught you that last Lord's Day. Because even John chapter 7 is going to tell us that the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified because it wasn't until Jesus was exalted in heaven. But the blessing of the Holy Spirit is upon someone that believes on the gift of God. If you believe on the Son of God, who is God's gift, you will, I'm talking about this moment in time, you will, three years from now, get the Holy Spirit. Jesus is going to refer in the future tense to all these blessings coming upon believers. Momentarily. He, he deals beautifully with this woman. He first of all takes up the water that she's going to dip out of this well and uses it as a metaphor to describe salvation and the gift of God and eternal life. It's gonna, and it's going to be a spring welling up. We're going to get more about that. It's going to be inside a man, but not at this point. Not in verse 10. In verse 10, he just tells her, if you knew the gift of God, what is the great gift of God to the world? The Lord Jesus Christ, his son. It's called the unspeakable gift in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 15. He had just taught it to Nicodemus a few days earlier. And so we have verse 10. If thou knewest the gift of God. There are two things here the poor Samaritan woman didn't know in truth. She didn't know the gift of God. His son being given for the certainty and assurance of everlasting life. And she didn't know the identity of the man that was asking her a drink. Because if she'd have known the two, they went together and she would have asked of him living water. She wouldn't have cared about the H2O in the well. She would have cared about what he had to give her to sustain her soul forever. Asking for the Holy Ghost is something that we ought to do now. Because we're on this side of Jesus being exalted. It's what we went over on Wednesday evening. It's why we prayed very specifically for more of the Holy Spirit, which is God's presence on earth. Christ in us. God in us. God dwelling with us and abiding with us forever. If we follow the continued exchange, which we're going to do right now, Jesus will indicate it to be the Holy Spirit by his description of this water being the emphasis of it. But at the moment... He transitions. Listen, he's going to say several things. He's going to say, the hour cometh. And you're going to think, well, it's all future. No, you're wrong. Because two verses later, he's going to say, the hour cometh and now is. Because it had already started of the full transition that was going to take place in the future. Jesus is going to say, the hour cometh when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem are you going to worship the Father. They weren't worshiping the Father in Mount Gerizim. And if you read ahead, Jesus is going to say, you, you Samaritans don't know what you worship. So I just want to put you, put you on your toes to be careful as you read down through this because Jesus allows her to think certain things until he corrects her as he moves along very gently. And there is incredible wisdom right here for us in dealing with anyone to go very slowly and to go very gently and to even allow them some of their false assumptions without jumping on every single thing they say. Do you hear me on that? Jesus is the master soul winner. He's going to get a city out of this. That should get your attention. Amen. He could have How would you have responded if someone that our culture may not think very highly of, criticized, or, or mentioned the difference between cultures like verse 9. Might you have jumped into that little fray 
and said, well, there's reasons why we don't have anything to do with you stinking Samaritans. Of course, nobody here would ever be tempted to say anything like that. I want you to see the Lord Jesus Christ did not respond that way at all. He simply said, if you knew the gift of God, and if you knew who it is that's speaking to you, you would have asked for something different. You'd have asked for living water. Let's go to verse 11. Sir, that doesn't mean extraordinary respect, common, common language. Uh, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence then hast thou that living water that you just made reference to? You know, until the Lord opens our eyes, we'll be as blinded as Nicodemus and this woman were. Jesus said to Nicodemus, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb? He could only think physically. He couldn't think spiritually. Jesus said, you would have asked of him living water. She can't think about that. She doesn't understand that. All she can think about is, listen, it's 100 feet down to the water, and you don't have anything to draw with. But brothers, have we been there before? Oh, yes, we have. In our misunderstanding of Scripture, and God's been merciful to us, and we want to thank Him because it's not by intelligence, nor is it by effort that we learn truth, but by God opening our eyes, ears, and heart to understand it. And He has led us over the years, many... We call them crossings of the Red Sea. They were so dramatic and involved so many changes in doctrine and practice. Praise his holy name. And whatever else he has to show us, Lord, show us. We want the living water. We don't want H2O. We don't care if it's Jacob's well. We don't care about the holy land. We want the Mount Zion in Jerusalem, which is above, which is the mother of us all. We want the Lord Jesus Christ revealed to us in fuller and plainer truth. Help us, Heavenly Father. Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with. If the Lord doesn't open our eyes, we'll be as blind as she was. Those in John 6 are going to get so angry at him, they're going to murmur at him because he calls himself the bread of life. They want a lunch. He gave them one free lunch when he fed the 5,000 men besides women and children, they want another free lunch. And they would like a whole lot of free lunches. The welfare system was getting cranked up in Judea with Jesus having taken a boy's lunch and fed 20,000 people with it. And so he says, I'm the bread of life. And unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, that sounds kind of cannibalistic. If you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. The disciples come, Lord, don't you know this is a hard saying? Yes. And didn't you hear me the first time when I said, no man can come unto me except the Father which hath sent me draw him? Let me try a few more on them. What and if ye shall see the Son of Man ascend up where he was before? (laughs) This is John 6. And from that time, many of his disciples followed him no more. You know, we would be just like them. We would turn away if it wasn't for the grace of God and granting us repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. And we're going to see this in John, more than the examples I'm giving you. The well is deep, sir. From whence then hast thou that living water? Well, he wasn't talking about anything that you could pull out of Jacob's well. 
It's a shame that people get so caught up in territory. You know, the Muslims are all caught up in Mecca. And the Samaritans were all caught up in Mount Gerizim. And the Mormons are all caught up in Salt Lake City. And, you know, the Canaan of the New Testament or whatever, they, the promised land of the New Testament, they call that desert out there. Forget places. Do you know how, how many advertisements do some of you get about traveling to the Holy Land? There's nothing holy about that land. Why would you want to travel to it? Do you think being baptized in the filthy Jordan River is something better than being baptized here? Why do you think that? Why would you just, I just want to walk in the dust that Jesus walked in. Why don't you learn the holiness that Jesus walked in and practice that? Let's, how many, listen, where do the Hindus go? Where's their holy place? It's, it's not the Taj Mahal. It's the Ganges, the filthiest water on earth, where they can go bathe in it. Forget places. Oh, we're going to learn that shortly, aren't we? The Father seeketh such that will worship him in spirit, not in location. Spirit, not in place. Spirit, not externally. Spirit, not with altars. Spirit and truth. Amen. Lord, help us to get to that in time. And by in time, I didn't mean sometime before the end of the year. I meant in time today is the appointed time for this. Lord, help us. Verse 12, she continues on because she doesn't understand yet. Jesus pointed out that she didn't know the gift of God and she didn't know who he was. But she, go, she continues, Art thou greater than our father Jacob? Now, I can't read that without shouting, Yes! Yes, he was greater than your father Jacob. What are you calling Jacob your father for? Ass-napper. Shalmaneser. Was your father, you Assyrian? What are you referring to Jacob as your father for? This is a Samaritan woman. They came from the Assyrians. But she's referring to, Art thou greater than our father Jacob? which gave us the well and drank thereof himself and his children and his cattle. Well, that gives a lot of value to the place, doesn't it? Jacob drank here. Jacob's dead and gone, but the Lord Jesus Christ is on his throne in heaven. Art thou greater than our father Jacob? Well, as a matter of fact, he was. But he didn't jump on that point and say anything yet. He proceeds very carefully, very slowly and very cautiously and from all that we can tell, he won her. The Jews appealed to Abram and Moses, didn't they? Paul and Jesus had to deal with them often appealing to Abraham. Abraham's our father. Jesus would respond, if Abraham was your father, you wouldn't be trying to kill me. They would, they would appeal to Moses. You think you're better than Moses? Yes. Isn't it wonderful in the Bible? Jesus said one time, and a greater than Solomon is here. I love that. And what did David say about his son? The Lord said unto my Lord, David, though he was the father of the Lord Jesus Christ by a thousand years, David said Jesus Christ was his Lord. Yes, Jesus Christ is greater than all these men, and these men are the greatest men in the Bible. Jacob is one of the patriarchs of Israel. God is called the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And was Jesus greater than Jacob? Oh, indeed. 
At best, she was a half-breed Assyrian and Ephraimite, at worst, an Assyrian. Why are natural men intent to respond arrogantly rather than ask a question? Why didn't she say, Who art thou, Lord? Because he hadn't fully opened her eyes yet. Did Saul of Tarsus have his eyes fully opened? When he met Jesus Christ, he said, Who art thou, Lord? And Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And that's, what, that's how we ought to approach the Bible. We should not come diving into this Bible anywhere with our mind fully made up, but we want the Lord to teach us. That doesn't mean we go to it with a blank slate without understanding everything we've read and learned thus far, but we want to be taught. And so we should ask, Lord, show me some wonderful things out of your word today as I read it. Open mine eyes that I might behold those things. Verse 13, Jesus answered and said unto her, he did not re rebuff her about Jacob being her father, about asking to see her birth certificate and becoming one of the birthers. Okay? He didn't do any of that. He just said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. The H2O that you're worried about right now and is, is causing us a little bit of difference in our discussion, you're going to be thirsty again after you drink from this well. That's why you have to keep coming out here all the time. Verse 14, But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. Now notice the future tenses in this verse. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. There's two future tenses. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. Water is a symbol and an emblem for the Holy Spirit. We were just taught it in John 3, 5. We shall be taught it again in John chapter 7, verses 37 through 39. This is water that is inside a man. Look at the verse. Look at what it's saying. This is salvation resulting in the gift of the Holy Spirit, God with us, not being worshipped in a place, not being worshipped through an altar, but God in us. And much, much more could be said about this 14th verse, but I said a lot of it last Sunday in the second service, and on Wednesday evening, we prayed for it, about the gift of the Holy Ghost. The living water I told you of satisfies forever, and it doesn't need to be drawn or drunk again. It's entirely unlike the natural H2O that you have in this well. The grace of Christ is entirely unlike all aspects of other religion. The water that I shall give him shall be in him. The Holy Spirit is in us. Jesus Christ is in us. Amen. I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. How does Jesus come to us? By a picture on the wall? By a picture in stained glass? By a crucifix? Jesus comes to us by the Spirit of Christ. Amen. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. It's Christ dwelling in us and Christ dwelling with us. And it is an incredible blessing. And he is quenched and grieved to the degree that you do not follow the commandments of God with zeal because he's offended by that conduct. But if you walk in the Spirit, as you already live in the Spirit by being born again, then the Spirit of God has multiplied, layered levels of ministry to you that will fill you with all the fullness of God and fill every nook and cranny of your heart with the assurance that God loves you. That's Romans 5, 5, Romans chapter 8, Ephesians, all six chapters. Right. 
And the things that we learned on Wednesday evening that I tried to share with you about the gift of God and what the real assurance of eternal life is, is having the Holy Spirit in you, causing a change in nature to love other people in a selfless way. That's the proof of eternal life. This incredible subject, detailed in John chapters 14 through 16, so don't think that we're done with it. And we're going to get to John chapter 7 soon enough, is most fabulous indeed. Jesus gave this incredible gift of himself and God the Father and God to us by his Spirit after he was exalted in heaven, just as promised in both Testaments. This, this Spirit in us will, will turn into a well of water springing up into everlasting life. It would not be a static, stagnant, limited quantity of H2O drawn from a well like yours, dear woman. This is all implied, but it would be a spring springing up in you because John chapter 7 is going to say, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Who in the world needs to draw from some static, stagnant water and call that something good when you can have inside of you a well busting forth and blowing up like a geyser in Texas? Except it's, it's water. And, out, and there's so much of it, it's flowing like rivers out of him because it's a changed life and the obvious fruit of that changed life to all those that look. And it can supply to others a blessings of the Holy Spirit. Lord, give us more of this. We prayed for it on Wednesday evening and we're begging thee for more of it right now. Living water that will spring up inside of us and lead us into everlasting life. Your presence with us until we're in your presence. Amen. 15, the woman saith unto him, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. Well, she's making progress. Sir, give me this water. I no longer want the stuff from Jacob's well. Give me your water, then I won't have to come out here three times a day to draw. But she's still thinking naturally. Consider the conversion so far of this woman by her response to spiritual truth. Her questions or disrespect were gone. She's no longer comparing Jesus to Jacob. She wanted the water he described. But she's going to continue in ignorance, learning more and more as he continued slowly with her. She is different than the men in John chapter 6 that murmured against him. She's not murmuring against him. She's not opposing him on this. Sir, give me this water, though she doesn't understand its spiritual implications yet. That I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. Jesus saith unto her, Go call thy husband and come hither. Now that we've made this much progress, why don't you go get your husband and bring him for this living water? Jesus took the exchange with this woman to the next level by divine wisdom. In his human nature, he would not have known either of the two secret facts about her that he's about to reveal. But in his divine nature, he knew them both perfectly well from before the world began. Call thy husband and come hither. His request prompted a new level of exchange and information about himself. Instead of calling fire down from heaven or giving some miraculous sign like that, he's going to just have a little exchange with her, and she's going to realize, I'm in the presence of someone that's not an ordinary Jew. Verse 17, the woman answered and said, I have no husband. 
Jesus said unto her, Thou hast well said, I have no husband. You have told the truth. You do not have a husband. Jesus granted that her answer was well said, for she did speak the letter of the truth, though not the full spirit of the reality of her life. She covered her former adultery and present fornication by her answer. But the Lord is not dealing with that at this moment. He's going to get full repentance out of her in a different route than just jumping on her right now. Is anyone learning right now? And have you learned by just going through this passage about how to deal slowly and gently and go for the big items and let the little items sort themselves out when the big items are taken care of? And what's the big item? Jesus is the Son of God and the Christ, and you ought to repent and believe on him. And from him, he is able to give you in three years' time a well of living water inside you that will spring up into a fountain of the power of God in your life of comfort and blessing and assurance and fruit. I have no husband. And Jesus said unto her, Thou hast well said, I have no husband. Verse 18, For thou hast had five husbands, and he whom thou now hast is not thy husband. In that saidest thou truly. She did not have a husband because either five men had died on her or five had divorced her or a combination of the two. Yes, her first and third husbands might have died and three others divorced her. Due to her present fornication by living with a man that she wasn't married to, we may quite safely assume five likely divorces, that this was a sinful woman, sexually sinful in her city. Why had they divorced her? Likely not for poor housekeeping, but for adultery. Why had they divorced her? Maybe for other reasons, given the next clause. And he whom thou now hast is not thy husband. When the Lord tells, we don't know. The Lord doesn't tell us, and you know why? He cuts it off at just five husbands, and the one you're with right now isn't your husband. You're living in fornication, and she may have committed adultery, but we're not told that because it doesn't matter. That's right. Now, when I find her living with a man, and she's had five husbands in a life, and she's got a sixth man, that implies certain things, but it's not necessary to the lesson. And so it's not important. And so we leave it, and we go on. He whom thou now hast is not thy husband. This is a regular sin in America of couples living together without marriage, but it's fornication. Fornication is the big broad category of sexual sins that are against God's law. Fornication includes living with someone. It doesn't matter if they love you and you love them. It doesn't matter if both parties agree. If you're not married, you're taking sexual privileges and enjoying intimacy with a woman when you don't have the right to do so. And that's the big category of fornication. Now, if there's a married party involved, then it's adultery. If it's two men, if two parties of the same sex involved, then it's sodomy. And so you can get, and there's incest, and there's all these different sins that you can get in a large category of fornication. She was guilty. The Lord Jesus Christ found her out. He whom thou now hast is not thy husband. In that saidest thou truly. Degradation of morals and tradition in America are not new in some senses, are they? There's nothing new under the sun. Verse 19. The woman saith unto him, Sir, 
Don't get too excited about the word sir. She's been using it all the way through. It's ordinary. I could show you Bible verses, but I don't want to, I don't want to leave the point. What a difference from how many could or would have answered this history. He just got personal with her. And do you know how people would have responded today? My history is none of your business. You don't know me. You don't know my heart. We know everybody's heart. Your heart is proven by what you say and do. Your heart is no different than what you say and do. Your mouth is a vent to your heart. If it comes out of your mouth, that's what your heart is. People love to do that because they think they can hide from us. But action, even a child is known by his doings according to the word of God. Many today would say, don't mock me, stranger, about my life. Think about how the average person would respond today. The arrogance and the defensiveness and the self-righteousness they would have had by having pointed out their sins by an ordinary-looking man. She showed a measure of humility and wisdom to recognize what most will not. What a difference, brethren. When Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, the Jewish leadership heard about it, and they had a council. It's in John 11. That is the chapter of Lazarus being raised from the dead. And what did they counsel about together? We need to kill Jesus and Lazarus because that a great miracle has been done, no one can deny. Now, wait a minute. If a great miracle has been done, shouldn't you want to explore the source of the power of the miracle? How can you be so blind? But the woman is not that blind, is she? She says, sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Amen. And more than a prophet. The Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Jews in Gethsemane rejected Jesus' admission I am he that threw them to the ground. If you came to get a man that you had heard about feeding thousands by a small boy's lunch, calming storms at sea, raising a dead man like Lazarus, and he walks out in front of his apostles to meet you, you, this angry mob in the middle of the Garden of Gethsemane, and Jesus says, who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. I am he and they all fall backward to the ground, would you have two thoughts that maybe you should get to the back of the mob? What about the woman? Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. I thank God for that change. How many healings on the Sabbath caused the Jews to conspire to kill the Lord Jesus Christ because he healed on the Sabbath instead of wondering Where did he get that power? This woman is being led through conversion. I perceive that thou art a prophet. While this perception was not enough to prove eternal life, it was a great start. If you witness to others, you will get initial statements comparable to this one. It's a start. I'd never heard of that before. You know, if you get a a response, I never heard that before. That's a good start. That's like, sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Go with it. Be thank the Lord for that response. Prophets had the ability from God to perceive things and or to reveal things, and so this woman acknowledges 
that this man had a gift from God as a prophet. But like we've already learned thus far in John, that's not enough to prove eternal life because others that believed that Jesus was the Messiah or was sent from God because of his miracle power, Jesus did not commit himself to them because that was insufficient. Well, what kind of faith is sufficient? Faith that changes your life. Faith that changes a life. So that a man that was once angry is now gentle. A man that was selfish is now selfless. A man that was hateful is now loving. A changed life. A man that was an extortioner like Zacchaeus now wants to give his money away. A man like Saul of Tarsus that killed Christians now wants to preach Christ. Those are changed lives. The Ephesians brought all their books of magic together and burned them. And the value of the pile of the bonfire was 50,000 pieces of silver. Those are changed lives. Because the proof of election and the proof of salvation is the work of faith, the labor of love, and the patience of hope that shows that a person is a true believer. Jesus Christ was much more than a prophet. And the next exchange is going to reveal him as the Christ to the woman. And she is going to go into her city and say, Is not this the Christ? And they are all going to come out. They're going to beg him to stay. He is going to stay for two days in a village, a city of the Samaritans, and convert a large number of them. And they are going to tell him, We no longer believe because of the testimony of the woman that came into the city and said that you told her all things that she ever did. We believe you now because of what you've told us. And so they believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, and he stayed, and he committed to them. Do you remember the terrible words that ended John chapter 2, verses 23 through 25, that there were people that believed on Jesus, but he did not commit himself to them because he knew what was in man. But he committed himself to this woman, and he stayed there. Beautiful. And he has committed himself to us and revealed so much to us, and he is with us as a church, and he is with us individually by his Spirit. All glory to God and his Son, Jesus Christ. Believe on him today and obey him today. Do not take any halfway measures. Be it all or nothing on the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.